Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Grace House Church Podcast. I am Joshua Kaler, one of the pastors at Grace House, and I wanted to take a second to introduce today's teaching. We are a group of house churches, and being a house church, we drumroll meet in homes. When we gather, we share a meal together. When we gather, we pray for one another. We celebrate God's work in each other's lives. We read scripture together and praise and worship together. And really the centerpiece of our gathering together is remembering Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection and soon coming by partaking in communion together. We also participate in a time of teaching and preaching from the Bible. Sometimes I get to teach, sometimes it's somebody else, and sometimes it's more straightforward and like a classic sermon, although there's always dialogue and discussion. Sometimes it's less monologue, though, and more dialogue where everyone's participating from the get-go. And some of my favorite, most edifying times together. Well, this is one such teaching where you have to put your notes to the side and try to follow where the Spirit's leading. I've actually cut out about 45 minutes of amazing discussion and insights from the saints. First, you may ask, Wow, you're cutting out 45 minutes. How long do you guys go? Well, you know, when you're together in a house setting, time flies when you're having fun. Secondly, if they're amazing, why cut that out, you may ask or be thinking. Not everyone's comfortable having their voice, their ideas, their opinions, their struggles, their joys listened to on a publicly available podcast. And preserving the intimacy of the group so that that kind of vulnerability can flourish is of utmost importance and our chief concern. And we'll protect that. So, that being said, when and if you listen to this, it might sound a bit disjointed, uh, unorganized. The outline won't win any awards, nor should it. But there is a lot of talk about Jesus and the gospel of grace, which is always good and always edifying. I'm also following through on a commitment to the beautiful people of Grace House who have requested these teachings. I pray if you listen, that Jesus is made much of in your heart. Blessings. Enjoy. Let's go to Ephesians chapter six, where we find out that the Christian life is like going on vacation. Just kidding. It's not. It is a battle. And, uh, but one that's already won. And Paul wants to remind us and he wants us to live our lives from a place of victory. Not a place where we're anxious or we're overwhelmed or full of weary or doubt or confusion, but from a place of peace, from a place of boldness and confidence in who he is and what he's done. And so let's read in verse 10, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For you do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Lord, again, we just want what you have for us this morning. Save us from the opinions of men and good ideas. We need the wisdom that's from God that is you, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that you'd make much of Jesus in our hearts above any circumstance, any situation, any anxiety, any fears, the feebleness of our tiredness, just the exhaustion of life. We just pray we'd wait on you during this time. And that, Lord, like you say, like you promised, we'd mount up with wings like eagles, that we'd run and not faint. So restore us the joy of our salvation, Lord. Renew a right heart within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're on to the belt of truth, and we're going to get into it today. In 1864, a physician named Ignaz Simulas, his name's crazy. You don't have to remember the name, but remember his story. Okay, 1864, that's not that long ago. This doctor stumbled onto the theory we now call germ theory. In those days, everyone thought diseases would spontaneously generate in the body because there was something wrong with the body, like having too much blood, that's why they'd bleed you, or getting too hot or something like that, fever. That's where this would come from. And so doctors would go between patients without ever washing their hands. They would go from working on a corpse, doing an autopsy, to delivering babies. This was just general practice. And so they would go and they would never wash their hands. It was believed in those days also that a gentleman's hands didn't need washing because they were already clean. Crazy, right? That's a that's wrong culture. Yeah, a cultural blind spot. So doctors would go from working on the corpse of a dead person to delivering a baby, which is why death rates in hospitals were so incredibly high. I mean, it was like at 40%. So this doctor began to suspect that they were carrying diseases with them in small particles invisible to the human eye. He didn't know what to call them, so he called them microbes. Literally, it's translated little pieces of flesh. Microbes, that's where the word comes from. It seems so obvious to us now looking back, but nobody in those days thought that way. He tested his theory by having just the interns wash their hands with water and a little chlorine before delivering babies and found the mortality rates went down dramatically. But even then, the doctors wouldn't accept the theory because the idea that all this destruction was caused by something you couldn't see just seemed unbelievable to them. We can't see it, it can't be. There's no point, it can't be that something we can't see causes so much destruction. At a famous conference, this doctor pleaded with these doctors, gentlemen, for God's sake, 
please just wash your hands. But nobody listened for about two decades until Luis Pastor, which we all know him, came along. Even his own wife didn't believe him, and he died in an asylum thought to be a crazy man. Yeah, because he saw all the death and the destruction around him, and he was calling it out, and everybody thought he was a fool. We can't see it. It can't happen. We can't see it. It can't happen. Many Christians can be as equally naive when we talk about spiritual warfare. When it comes to what's happening in their lives, because they're disbelieving of what they can't see. That's where our wrestle, that's where our battle is. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, not in the physical, but in the spiritual realm, right? Andy Stanley says that if you want to see the evidence for the spiritual realm, you won't find it by looking through a microscope, but by looking in the rearview mirror, the rearview mirror of your life, right? Can't you look back and see how certain temptations were just too perfect. You know, it's Joseph in the book of Genesis. He's this young, strong man, and Potiphar's wife makes sure everybody's out, and then she comes on to him. Like, it's just too perfect a set of circumstances, perfectly timed and specifically tailored for you. It's way more than merely coincidental, right? How the wrong person was put into your life at just the right time. I performed it. It's actually how I met my wife up at a camp, church camp, a skit in Japanese because me and my brother wanted to be missionaries to Japan. And so uh, suicide is a crazy thing in Japan because if a student fails, he doesn't get into the right school. He's not going to get the good job. It's an honor culture. And so the parents look down on the student, the students look down on themselves and their suicide rate is insane in Japan because of that perf perfect standard they try to set for themselves and the parents set for their kids. So anyways, we did a skit about suicide. We did it in Japanese and because the whole point of the camp trying to show kids like you don't have to wait to be older to be used by God. And that, that was the whole point of camp. But anyways, I met my wife after that. That was amazing. But a counselor came up to me and she was like, your temptation's going to increase 100%. The Lord gave me a word for you. I was like, okay, weird. And then there was this girl at the camp who I thought was pretty cute, but out of my league kind of thing and stuff. Well, then she became obsessed with me at the camp, wrote my name on her stomach, burned it in with a lighter and just was like, it's like the movie Fatal Attraction or something. It was bad, but like a sheep to his shears is dumb. I was dumb and I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. It can't be that word that God gave me. And she had one thing on her mind and I remember going to a park with her. I was going to minister to her. I was going to, you know, missionary dating, disciple her in the trenches as we would call it. And I remember it was a bad situation I was in and with her and we were alone and everything. And it was crazy. And we we're at this park and it's dark. And all of a sudden the sprinklers came on and I was like, God rescued me. And we ended the, in the relationship ended, but too perfect a situation. Nothing against her, like nothing. Huh? All right. <laughs> Amazing. But it was just like this, so dialed to the point where some stranger was told by God, you need to warn this kid. And it warned me. It was like too perfect of a situation that sit back and observe as soon as like taking a stand, doing something, hey, we can, we're not going to let people despise our youth. We're going to be used by Jesus. And that temptation comes. And, and there's other times where God's tried to rescue me in the midst of it. And I've been too dumb. 
The wrong person was put into your life at just the right time, or the right question was planted in your head to throw you off track. Did God really say? Does God really care about this? Does he really value this? Doesn't he want this for you? Or the suspicion in your heart came at just the right time. Maybe God doesn't want what's best for me. Maybe God forgot. Maybe this is punishment, suspicion just a little bit. Or the perfect storm seemed to happen in important relationships to really drive a wedge between you. Like something at work or something in a marriage, something like this perfect storm that just like had your number right on it, the very thing, you know, to drive a wedge to break you. Paul concludes the book of Ephesians by reminding them of the presence of these spiritual forces and attempt to turn them once again away from trusting in themselves and to trust in God. The whole point of Ephesians is to lean into the strength, the sovereignty, the divinity, the holiness, the omnipotence, the omniscience of our good God. He's telling us to pray that we might see it and taste it with spiritual taste buds. He's praying that we might expand our capacity for his love. Like over and over, he's saying this is the whole point. And so by presenting these spiritual forces that are powerful and strong, he's saying once again, don't leave this book going out into your own strength. Because that would be the worst sermon ever. He's like, I don't want you to treat this like a typical Western religious sermon where it's like, cool, I found out some cool facts about God. I understand the Greek word and the aorist tense. And now I've got the knowledge. And now tell me the three things I have to do to better my marriage. Now I'm going to go do it in my own strength. And I'm going to try really hard. Paul is saying, no, guys, the whole point is that you're not only facing the world, which he talked about in chapter two, the flesh, and then now you're also facing these spiritual forces that want to destroy you. Do not move out from the presence of God. Stand firm in him. Do not move beyond the gospel of what he's done. Stand in it firm. That's your foundation. That's the house that is built on the rock. You taking the sermon upon yourself to do it and to do the PowerPoints are the key things. That's building your house on the sand. That's man's might and man's strength. And he says, no, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You cannot be strong in yourself and strong in God. And it is only when you sense your weakness that you will be strong in God. So God, beautifully, we're, all, we're like, why trials? Why trials? Why is it so hard? Why storms? Isn't it so often to reveal your weakness and his strength? Aren't trials to undermine your self-sufficiency? That I could do it. I, we just watched The Chosen this last week and it's Peter walking on water. It's incredible. And Peter gets his eyes on the storm. He's like, I got this. And the whole point is like, Jesus says, no, I got you. I've got you. I'm the Lord of the storm. I'm the Lord of the storm. All through our lives, the storms that come in are to show that he is faithful to rescue, that he is faithful to save, even when we feel like we're out in the middle of nowhere, that we're vulnerable, that he is a mighty fortress, that he is our shield. He is our strength. He is our sustenance. He is everything. And so trials, God allows these things. When it talks about perfecting your faith, that over and over you see that he's faithful even when we're not. I think the desire for the pill, 
the spiritual pill. It You could see it in like the whole weight loss industry, which is find the right diet. This is the one and people are promising you. This is the one. The self-help industry is a billion dollar industry. But the whole thing that they combat in the first century is Gnosticism, which was like, hey, Jesus is cool, but don't you really want to get spiritual? We'll take you, we'll give you the five secret principles. We'll give you the deeper knowledge more than, yeah, because of Christ, you love him. Don't you really want to learn, live for him? And it's this, here's what you do. It's pushing religion into Christianity. The thing about Christianity is we got to remember, and what flies in the face of our Western culture is Christianity is not about going from weakness to strength. That's not maturity. It's going from strength to weakness. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's the upside down nature of it. It's increasing more my dependence every day. What's crazy is the baby Christian and the Christian who's walked for 40 years, it's not so much about time is what time does to cause dependence. And so maturity isn't, I've graduated seminary, I have X number of years, I've got this. It's those who linger long in the presence of God. That's maturity. And for me, early on, I'm like, had those moments where I'm like abiding and I just sense the Lord and I'm there and he's talking to me about, hey, I passed up that trash. He's, I felt like God was like pressing my conscience. Oh yeah, like little things like that. It was like every part of my life was filled. But then I would run out ahead and I would go in my self-sufficiency. I would go, okay, I got it. Okay, here's what you say about purity. Here's the verses I'm going to say. I'm going to go out and try on my own and I fall flat on my face. Why doesn't it work? Because I've left my strength. I've moved from abiding, depending on him as the source of my joy, the source of my strength, that he's my greatest desire. To conquer a desire, you need a greater desire. And that's just in every sphere of life. And when you sit in that, when you linger in that, when the Holy Spirit's preaching to your heart daily, it was C.H. Persian. I did a biography on him once, and he said that over the past like 40 years, he hadn't gone more than 10 minutes out of fellowship with Jesus. That's mind-blowing. So he would just, he'd catch himself, wait a minute, something's weird. And like when you go over to somebody's home, you're so used to the smell in your own home, right? And then you go over to somebody's home and you're like, oh, that's what the Zenudo smell like. Or you guys say, oh, that's what the Kaler smell like. It's a mixture of pets and kids and children and all of it, right? It's like that. He would go into an environment and go, oh, wait, this isn't where the Lord is. But just that knowledge, that intimate relationship. But he said the way that he got there was through, drum roll, suffering. Suffering. So there's, because what suffering refines out of us is self-sufficiency and our own attempt at righteousness. It reveals that we are weak. It reveals that we can't swim against the storm, no matter if we've, like Peter, been a fisherman and grew up on the lake. That we cannot triumph over the storm. We need the Lord of the storm in our boat. That's maturity. Maturity recognizes Jesus is the Lord of the storm and I'm not. And you learn the Lord's heart. Like the Lord doesn't cause suffering, but he redeems it. He hates evil. He hates suffering. It's one of the reasons he came back but he will use suffering in our lives to accomplish the exact opposite of what the enemy wants to accomplish through suffering. The enemy thinks if they suffer, they're gonna abandon you because they only love you because things are good and cushy, like he told Job. Look at Job. 
And God said, you can do this much. And he only allows the exact opposite of what Satan is trying to accomplish, which is the defeat of evil in Satan, which is amazing. And that it ultimately serves our joy in the end when he wipes every tear from our eyes to see him triumph, to see him glorious, to see him rescue us over and over. We'll get to it, but like we need to see every day, the Lord is my shepherd. Like I shall not want, like he leads me, right? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Like you've prepared for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Like we need the Lord all the way through every step of the way. We don't go, okay, God, I'm trained. Launch me out. It's no, we're, everything's about being in him, abiding, being like he is our strength. And Paul reminds us of that here. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. One of the ways that we know that if we're strong in ourself or strong in God, and this is just so undoing, so I'll move through this quickly because I don't want this to be too convicting for me, is prayer. Paul says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He says in every situation, what is prayer? Prayer is that are communicating that we need God. We need his rescue. We're, we're confused. We don't know what to do. Making supplication. We're misaligned. We begin to think and we begin to tell him how beautiful he is over the things that our hearts are fondling currently at the moment. Paul E. Miller, amazing book called The Praying Life. He said, according to Jesus, acknowledging our neediness opens the door to genuine and lasting happiness. Religion usually talks about what a person has to do but Jesus talks about what we can't do. Very important how we read when Jesus is talking. He says that our weakness, not our power, or what we bring to God enables us to know God. Our weakness, not our power. We have an allergic reaction to dependency. But this is the state of the heart most necessary for a praying life. A needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. If you're not praying, you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy, but if like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find time to pray. <sighs> and so he's just saying that shows our neediness, our dependency. Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Roll it up. God, I'm exhausted today, but I know you say that I am to be great in your kingdom is to be the servant of all. Help me. Give me strength to serve. Let me see how you've served me. Like just that continual prayer life, that continual talking to the Lord. The tasting good food. Lord, that's amazing. Like talking to him all the time about everything. That ongoing communication. How do we appropriate God's strength in our lives? So armor and the belt of truth, the armor. Paul tells us the environment we do God's work in is not a playground, but a battleground. It's not vacation. It's, it's a battle. I remember two missionaries were coming home from Africa and they happened to be on the same boat that Teddy Roosevelt was coming home on a safari that he had just done. And so as they pull in, they had spent their entire lives. They were retiring. They're old. They had nothing to their name. And as they pull in on this ship coming back to America, there is a parade. There is the band, the big brass band playing. There's banners all celebrating Teddy Roosevelt. He's come back. He's been victorious. He's killed lions and stuffed them. Wow, look at our president. It's so cool and everything. 
And as everybody cleared, as he got driven away, as everybody just dissipated, these missionaries had one suitcase to their name and they were left alone. Nobody picked them up. They made their way with what little change they had and they got a hotel room and they were gonna try to figure out where do we go from here. And the husband had just had enough. He'd been like, I can't believe that. We have given our lives to God. We have spent ourselves for his kingdom and his work. And uh, not one single person was there to welcome us home. What's up with that? He probably didn't say what's up with that. He's so frustrated. And his wife, like, like wives are off to do, corrected his vision and said, but honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. We're pilgrims. We're not home yet. This isn't where we get that welcome. This isn't where we get that celebration, where we get that parade. That's coming. That, and from God himself, it's a, the angels are a much greater brass band than the best brass band. And I like ska music, but man, I like the supertones, but man, being welcomed into heaven and having the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords himself look at you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come enter into my joy. Let's celebrate. Let's feast. Let's party. It's going to be everything. Yes. So it reminds us that's coming and it's sure. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. God has written our names in the Lamb's book of life, not in a pencil where he's going to erase it depending on what you do, but by his blood, he's engraved you on the palms of his hands. You are ever before him. It's no mistake, after talking about what the Christian life is to be, that he gets us to this spiritual battle imagery. Wherever God's people join God's work of redeeming and renewing in every sphere of life, the enemy will oppose. No saint is excluded. Wherever marriages are built up, families are made healthy, places of work infiltrated with loving servants, churches that love each other and demonstrate that through love, that we are really Jesus' disciples to the watching world, where cities are loved and served and prayed for, where just injustice isn't fought and mercy wins the day, the enemy will oppose that work. He's okay with stasis, static. He's okay and he likes when we're just on coast. He doesn't like the people who are taking a stand, standing in the Lord's strength. He doesn't, he, he'd rather it lukewarm. You're neither hot or cold. You're not causing all this and stuff. And yeah, you don't get involved in other people's business. You just mind your own business. You've got eternal insurance. You're, you're just, you, yeah, you're, he loves that. He loves that. The danger about the lukewarm church is that Jesus is trying to get in and break bread with you. You know, he's like, hey, the whole Christianity thing is about us, me and you sharing and sitting at the table in fellowship, right? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, or we put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In giving the spiritual armor, Paul is not introducing a new theme he hasn't covered yet in Ephesians. No, each of the pieces of armor is a simply a way of applying the gospel that he's been teaching for six chapters through Ephesians to different parts of life. He, in essence, is saying, let the gospel be all over you. Your head, your heart, your waist, your hands, your feet. 
When we become a Christian, there's a sense in which we have all the blessing and power and privileges and benefits that are Christ's. In another sense, we've been learning this whole time in which we need to appropriate it to put it on. There's stories about people who've been given an inheritance and their bank account is got millions of dollars in it, and yet they're evicted because they won't draw on what they have. They live like paupers. They live like they're poor. They live in that old time kind of way that they grew up in, a scarcity mindset. And, and they won't literally draw on what belongs to them. They have the card, run it, it's yours. And, and so Paul is saying, we need to put this on, right? It's yours, and this armor is pretty amazing. Now just put it on, and we're going to talk about what that means. Um, we have it, we need to put it on to bring what we have in Jesus into the core of who we are. The gospel is the power of God in your life, Romans 1, and the way God reverses the corruption of sin and repels the power of Satan from you. So Paul's urging the Ephesians to take the things he taught them about God and cover every part of them with it, leave no part out there. The way we keep the corrupting influence of the enemy out of our lives is by establishing every part of our life, our hopes, our dreams, our failures, our worries, our fears, our relationships, our pleasures, our disappointments on the good news of Jesus, on the gospel of what he's done. The flip side of this is that whatever part of you is not established in the gospel, whether that's your marriage, your job, your dreams, whatever part is not saturated in that gospel identity is subject to manipulation of the enemy against you. I think we all know this, right? Let the gospel cover your head and your feet and your waist and your chest. That's the armor because when something is covered by and fortified in the gospel, Satan can't touch it. You're strong in your identity. You're putting it on. You're thinking about it. And we're going to talk about how that works with truth. The armor of God puts stress on the fact that this is not something we have naturally. It's the armor of God. It's from God. It's His armor. It's something that has been provided to us as a gift to us. It's not something we muster. It's not something that we get after going to seminary. Hey, you've got your, your degree, and now you can wear the armor. I don't know. I, growing up in youth ministry, we'd always have youth pastors trying to explain the armor, and I, it was so abstract. And I was like, okay, I don't get it. What does it mean? Put it on. And so I'd be like, in my room, I'm like, um, dad would always say, I don't know if you saw Batman 1989 by Tim Burton, but his car was so cool. He'd just say, shields up. And the shields, my dad would always say that when he'd pray. He'd be like, Lord, we're going out today, shields up. And we'd all make the noise, you know, what does this mean to put it on? But first of all, it's from the Lord. I told you guys, let's look at Isaiah 59. I'm just going to read it in the message. Listen, look, listen. God's arm is not amputated. He can still save. God's ears are not stuck. still here. There's nothing wrong with God. The wrong is in you. Your wrong-headed lives caused the split between you and your God. Your sins got between you so that he doesn't hear. Your hands are drenched in blood. Your fingers dripping with guilt. Your lips smeared with lies. Your tongue swollen from muttering obscenities. No one speaks up for the right. No one deals fairly. They trust in illusion. They tell lies. They get pregnant with mischief and have sin babies. They hatch snake eggs and weave spider webs. Eat an egg and die. Break an egg and get a snake. The spider webs are no good for shirts or shawls. No one can wear these weavings. 
They weave wickedness, they hatch violence, they compete in the race to do evil and run to be first to murder. They plan and plot evil, think and breathe evil. They leave a trail of wrecked lives behind them. They know nothing about peace and less than nothing about justice. They make torturously twisted roads. No peace for the wretch who walks down these roads. Explaining a very dire situation, a very dire city, a very dire state, which means that they're far cry from fair dealing. And we're not even close to right living. We long for light, but sink into darkness, long for brightness, but stumble through the night. Like the blind, we inch along a wall, groping eyeless in the dark. We shuffle our way in broad daylight like the dead, but somehow walking. We're no better than the bears groaning, no worse than the doves moaning. We look for justice, not a sign of it, for salvation, not so much as a hint, looking at their own people to save, their own strength to save. Our wrongdoings pile up before you. God, our sins stand up and accuse us. So not only are they in a dire way, no, not only can their own strength not save them, but they're choosing the darkness, the crookedness of their hearts. God is seeing that, and he's going to give an answer to it. Our wrong wrongdoings pile up before you, God, our sins stand up and accuse us. Our wrongdoings stare us down. We know in detail what we've done, mocking and denying God, not following our God, spreading false rumors, whipping up revolt, pregnant with lies, muttering malice, justice is beaten back. Righteousness is banished to the sidelines. Truth staggers down the street. Honesty is nowhere to be found. God is missing an action. Anyone renouncing evil is beaten and robbed. And so that's the situation. This kind of is a biography of all of our salvations. This is the no one wants God, no one seeks for him in Romans 3. This is the realistic portrayal of a life separated from God, a life who tries on its own to sustain itself, to be self-sufficient, to be self-righteous. That's out for its own. That's out to decide. This is where truth is coming from. This is where I get pleasure. This is right and this is wrong. And in the whole scheme of it, God looks at it and all it's doing is piling up wrath for the day of judgment. Righteousness is banished to the sidelines. Verse 15, God looked and saw evil looming on the horizon, so much evil and no sign of justice. He couldn't believe what he saw, not a soul around to correct this awful situation. And isn't that the state? Can't we all testify to that? Not as much as we wanted it, no matter our strength. You know, all the false messiahs in the past, all the religious systems in history could never save, could never lift a finger, could never change the human heart. So he did it himself, took on the work of salvation. He dressed in righteousness, put it on like a suit of armor with salvation on his head, like a helmet, put on judgment, like an overcoat. And he threw a cloak of passion across his shoulders, Just such a beautiful description of his zeal for saving you, his desire to save you. He'll make everyone pay for what they've done. Fury for his foes, just deserts for his enemies. Even the far-off islands will get paid off in full. Nothing escapes his eyes. In the west, they'll fear the name of God. In the east, they'll fear the glory of God. For he'll arrive like a river in a flood stage, whipped to a torrent by the wind of God. 
I'll arrive in Zion as redeemer to those in Jacob who leave their sins. God's decree As for me. God says, this is my covenant with them, my spirit that I've placed upon you and the words that I've given you to speak. They're not going to leave your mouth and the mouths of your children nor the mouths of your grandchildren. You'll keep repeating these words and won't ever stop. God's orders. And so he says, I'm going to go to battle. I'm going to clothe myself with righteousness as a breastplate, the helmet on my head as salvation. I'm going to gird myself up with armor and not a single person who's done wrong will be able to stand against the holy glory of almighty God. And Jesus comes onto the scene and people ask him, where's your army? He tells Peter, when Peter draws a sword, put it away. That's not how we fight. And he goes to the cross and he wins by losing his righteousness that he wore, became our righteousness, the salvation that he provided, that he went to battle and he accomplished it. So crazy. And then we see it there. No one escapes. No one escapes God's righteous, holy judgment upon sin because sin is evil, wicked, and twisted, and God is holy and just, and there has to be an answer to it. And Jesus stepped in, and he bore that answer. He took the punishment. He took the legal wrath for what I deserved from a holy God. I love that verse because it's like, even where you think God doesn't see, even when you've forgotten, he remembers and he laid it on Jesus's shoulders so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be made right, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be brought back into Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day, family restored. He bought us back. He redeemed us by the blood, by his blood that he shed as he suffered in our place. Jesus won the victory that day. He put that armor on. And so when he's talking about the armor, he's not talking about an armor we muster, but he's talking about the armor that gospel armor that he wears, that it's a foreign righteousness that's given to us to protect our heart, to protect our conscience. We'll talk about that next week, that the helmet of salvation, that we're to have that, that we're new creations in Christ, the oldest passed away, behold, everything's become new, that faith in who he is, however small it is, and however big the dart is, will quench the fiery darts of the evil one if it's faith in him and what he's done and what he declares to be real. The belt of truth. Get in and talk about these things. But guys, this isn't something you muster. It's not, okay, I'm putting the... It is recognizing what he's already accomplished. The gospel is good news about what's been done, not advice of what you have to do. The armor of God is not advice about what you have to do. It's appropriating what has already been done and what has already been won for you at the cross of Jesus Christ, verified in the resurrection in the empty tomb. It is appropriating the work of Jesus now as he intercedes on our behalf. Doesn't sleep, doesn't slumber, but sees and intercedes as that faithful high priest that we can come to boldly and find grace in the time of need. That he is gentle and he's lowly of heart. That he's drawn to our failures. That he's drawn to our weakness. That he's drawn to those times when we're so frustrated at the brokenness of this world and the brokenness that we do to others that he's constantly moving towards us and not away from us. That's what we're taking. Everything that he won for us, we're putting that on. And that's how you're protected. That's how you're strong is when the gospel is girding your loins, when the gospel is protecting your heart, when 
when your mind is saturated in your new identity, when you believe what God says is true, when you believe that he's the authority in this world and you can say, yeah, this is what I want to do or this is what you say is true, but it is written, it is written, it is written that this is what God says is true. This is how he made the universe and he is my authority. He is my king. He is my Lord. He is the captain of my salvation. So like it is putting these things on and what God has done. So it's another way of him saying, be who I made you. Live a little out of who I made you. I, at the beginning of the study of Ephesians, we talked about the kid who was never good in school, and then he took the SATs, and he scored one of the highest scores you can get in the SATs, and he's like, geez, that's crazy. I should get my life together. I didn't know I was this smart. And so then he became an entrepreneur, and he built a business and everything. 20 years later, he got his real score. They had mixed him up. He got some other kid's score. But just the idea that this is who you are, you are not this, you are this, transformed his life. Now that's a goofy story about an SAT. This is Jesus Christ saying, this is who I've made you now. You are a child of God. You are not a human being that I have made a little better. You were dead and I've made you alive. You've been born again. You have a new nature, not a reformed nature, not a remodeled nature, a new nature. The oldest passed away. Everything's become new. You are a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That is like what we need to sing every day in creating the gospel. We don't, the gospel is not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. You don't move beyond the gospel into deeper theology. The gospel is the deeper theology. Your life will be splint, spent meditating, chewing, taste thinking, thinking out the implications like an accountant, weighing, or as Paul uses, reckoning, filling out the ledger, weighing it, letting that reality of what God says is true. The more we move out in that, the more we stand in that, we stand in it, that's where the victory is because the victory's already been won in the gospel. So Isaiah eleven fifteen says, and also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. So again, all this is something that God does and something God gives. It's not something you dredge up or you go to Bible school to earn. It doesn't come at the end of four years after you graduate. It will be each and every Christian, but you must appropriate it. Put on the gospel that's already yours. Take the various benefits and resources you have in the gospel and not just believe in them intellectually, but use them. But use them. Tim Keller says that if you really believed for a day... that God loved you no matter what you did. And you couldn't get more of his love. And you couldn't lose it. That he loves you fully and completely. That you would live a different life. A different life. Why? Because I don't have to worry because God loves me. If we really leaned into that one little fact, like I don't have to be anxious. Because this is passed through the nail scarred hands of Jesus. He's sovereign. He sits on his throne. So like, this, if he loves me, then he knows what's best for me. He knows what's good. So I can just be at peace. I can like, see how transformative that is? Even that little decision can come from a place of 
our gospel identity. Because like I would, I often try to do so much because I want to please everybody. What happens is, and then I end up failing everybody, which then I spiral and I go into this, oh man, I'm worthless. And this whole thing, that's one of my struggles. It's so an issue. it's an identity issue because if I believe that I am already loved and adored, that like I've been approved, that whole part of the gospel being applied to the root, the wrong, the that which was deficient in my heart. I think we all have something like at the root of everything that everything springs. We could look the same fruit where it could be anxiety. Maybe I've got anxiety, but it's because I fear that he's not going to validate me. Where my wife, she could have anxiety because she doesn't have control of the situation. So the root is different. The fruit looks the same, but really it's the gospel that then applies to the root that kills all the fruit, the bad fruit. And so for me, I remember um, being rejected in a sense, and that's my fear is. So this group of guys, they went on a trip. I was excluded. And I remember my heart was just like devastated and torn. And I wanted to like, just, oh, these were supposed to be family, all this stuff. I'm a redheaded stepchild, although I don't have red hair. It just, just all I could see is myself. And then I started questioning my personality. Oh man, I'm flawed. I'm an outsider. I'm all the, I don't fit on and all this. And it was like, I, it was one of those moments where the Lord was showing me this. And all of a sudden I went, why are you cast down on my soul? And I started preaching to my heart. And I think this is like putting the gospel armor on. And I said, I said, the only circle that your desire for validation and fear of rejection, the only circle that really mattered, that other circle you want to be in is just an echo that will never satisfy. You didn't deserve to be in that circle. You chose to remove yourself from it. You ran from it. But God left that circle and he died to bring you in. He validated you through his validation and he'll never pull it away. I can't tell you, like right then and there, I just started worshiping. I was healed. Like, I'm in the circle. I'm never going to be rejected. He will never leave us or forsake us no matter what. All of a sudden, now I don't have to worry about my personality, my performance, was I good enough? Did I bring in enough of this? Am I a good enough teacher? Or am I funny enough? Like all that analyzation that just t destroys you. It was like, I'm accepted. I'm accepted in heaven above, and that is invincible. And that's where my identity is. And that's putting that gospel armor on. And now this area where the enemy wanted to drive a wedge, and he could have done it if I would have stayed in myself in my own armor. Now, now I would have pulled back from those relationships. I would have been cold or indifferent, or I would have tried to get back or passive aggressive. All of a sudden division starts to happen. Now I can just love my brothers because I've been accepted. I've been loved. I've been brought in. And now I can look for ways to bring them in because I know how it feels to be excluded, but that's not against them. Now I get to bring them in and bring other people in. I get to go to the highways and byways and expand the circle and bring people before God. That's the armor wearing. That's like putting it on. And that all of a sudden, that arrow was quenched. It was destroyed. The attack and the schemes of the enemy was done away with. Now there's, I could tell you 10 other stories of where the lion ravaged me and pulled me out of the circle and had his way. But again, Christ rescues, he redeems. We talked about prayer where Paul prays for the Ephesians and he says, open the eyes of their heart. 
that they might see this, expand their capacity, give them power to comprehend with all the saints, the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. So like we can't just move out in our own strength and go, God loves me, God loves me, and tell ourselves 10 times. We literally need the Holy Spirit himself to preach to us and a heart to receive it and a dependence that even in that he would be strong for us. Because we're going to bump up against a situation we're just telling ourselves it's not enough. We need the Holy Spirit to take up the Word of God and to breathe the fire that it is into our hearts. So even in that, we move out in dependence. It's crazy. It's, Lord, I want to believe this. Help my unbelief. Lord, when I don't believe it, will you catch me? And can we like get back to the, can we get back to the race? Emotions are like musical instruments. They, you need the notes, right? You need somebody to write the music, but that's the expression of the notes. So emotions are given to us to express ourselves, like in worship and passion and zeal and these things like, like God doesn't make us automaton robots where we just, I will obey. He wants zeal. He wants like people who like, love him because he loves us in the same way and we're made in his image and we reflect that. God isn't a robot where he's like, I love you. I will send my son to die for you. We will spend a million years together. You know, he is zealous for you. He is zealous for your joy. He is passionate. It says like it gave him great pleasure to save you, to choose you before the foundation of the world. God's yeah, let's get Junior. Jesus, Junior, Christina, let's get Leanne. Let's do it excited to save, to choose you, to bring you into his family. And yeah, but we need the notes. Two points on that are, is the psalmist, he's constantly talking about he delights in the law of God. He meditates on it day and night, like it's sweet to him, like honey. What he's saying there is he's saying, you're my authority. And that's where I find my delight is when you are in charge, God. When what you says is, say is true, there was a lady who Andrea's mom actually was talking to in counseling who had committed adultery and Andrea's mom was trying to point out to her in scripture, like, this is what the Lord says about this here and here. And she's, oh, oh sweetheart, those are for me. That's somebody who's picking and choosing. That's somebody who's, I like this part. I don't like this part. It would be like if I said, I love Andrea, but not Nicole Kaler. I can't take part of her. I, if I, Tom comes into my house, Tom, you can come in, but leave Zenudo out there. Like, it's ri- <laughs> ridiculous. You can't separate the person. Like, you can't pick and choose. It's, it's, he's everything. He's the king. Like, and then finally is C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. The kids are about, the beavers are telling the kids, hey, you're about to meet Aslan. And uh, such and such getting him ready for the meeting. And then it comes out that he's a lion. And they're like, wait a minute, Aslan's a lion? He's nice. He's gentle, right? And, she's, and the beaver's like, what? No, he's a lion. He's terrifying. He's terrifying. But he's good. And I love that because C.S. Lewis captures God is powerful. He's not your, he's not like a bud. He's not even a man who's better than you. He is the uncaused cause. He holds the atoms and the molecules in the palms of his hand. He speaks and brings about the laws of nature. He's on the ocean and then the fury of the waves and the storm and the lightning and the thunder, he says, be quiet. And it obeys him. It bows to him. And so too should we. But he's good. He's good. And all that power is used for your joy and his glory, not to punish, 
not to wrath you, not to manipulate the situation, to cause unpurposed suffering. It is for your good. It is for your joy. And we submit in his goodness and in his glory. He is our authority and our lives are right. They fit. They are right when we live under that authority. That what he says goes. That he's our authority, not popular culture, not popular opinion, not the morality of the day, which is constantly changing. But what he says is true, even if it's unpopular. Um, so that's that idea. He's ferocious, but he's good. Let's end on that. So we'll get to the belt of truth next week. Um, but we want to take communion now. Again, just thinking about this armor that the Lord girded up. And you wouldn't, again... It would be crazy to go into battle and to let that be stripped off of you. But think about it. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Guys, that's incredible. That's incredible. Like he took your place. You can't ever get over that. In Peter, it says, hey, we should be maturing. These things should be happening in our life. If it's not, then it's because we've become short-sighted unto blindness, forgetting that we've been forgiven from our sins. Like, part of our victory is standing, and that's why Jesus gave it to us over and over. Every time you're together, you're eating or drinking, remember, my body broken for you so you could become whole. My blood shed so that you could be forgiven. Why? Because as we learn in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Why Leviticus also tells us, because the life is in the blood. It was a visible symbol of a life being exchanged for a life. The cross is so bloody because it's a visible symbol that the very Son of God had to die in your place for you to have peace today, for you to have a renewed heart, for you to have eternal life. But the gospel also tells us that he was glad to do it, that he was the willing lamb who was perfect, who was slain on our behalf. So by his wounds, we're healed, right? So Jesus loves you. He's for you. He's provided everything you need for life and godliness. And he anticipates that we would lean into him, that we would realize our weakness even before we get out of bed, go, I've probably blown it. I'm already thinking. I'm already getting stressed. Oh, capture my heart. Let me put that helmet on low. Thank you for salvation. The salvation that's invincible, that Satan himself can't pluck us out. Of the Father's hand, I'm safe. I'm secure no matter what happens today. Heaven is my home. That's my destiny to be with you forever. Thank you. Boom, get out of bed. Better than a cup of coffee, right? Plant your feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace, right? You're like... Here we go. We're going to go minister the good news. We get to tell people good news. The prophets had to tell people bad news. We get to be like the new prophets who get to tell good news to a hungry and thirsty and weary and broken world. And no matter how much they look on the outside, when they hear the gospel, because it's a power that they're just like, oh, that's done. There's something reverberating in their heart that says, you've been made for that. It's true. It's true. Let's remember Jesus. Let's remember, let's lean into him. Let's be ever more dependent. 
let's make it the goal to recognize our weakness this week. Let him search us and know us so that we would be like little children and lean on to our Abba who's provided everything. Pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just this book of the Bible, Lord. We thank you for your good news. Thank you, man. Set people free from religion. Set your own people free from religion, Lord. What bad news. God, make us proclaimers of your grace. You're so good. There's none like you. And Lord, we say thank you once again. And where our hearts have grown a little icy, Lord, too. You for me. For that substitution. Lord, even as we ingest this bread and this wine, we pray that, Lord, your good news would shape our hearts right now. That our souls would be nourished on the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So we praise you. We thank you for today in Jesus' name. Amen.